This is day 214 of our daily Bible reading. We'll begin 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 5. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning. Thank you for your fresh mercies today. Thank you for this life that you've given us. Thank you for the creation around us that we take for granted so often. Lord, you have blessed us so abundantly, and yet we are such spoiled children. Please help us to appreciate what you've done. As we get closer to Easter, Lord, may you give us a posture of heart that is completely yours, that we may approach these days with anticipation, with knowing that you have done great things for us. We thank you, Lord, for your death and your resurrection from the cross. As we enter into your word today, please anoint these words by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are foolish and useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. 
all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, and poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness?
it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Okay, so now we are in the Corinthians. Now, a little bit of background on these letters to the Corinthians. So, 1 Corinthians was written more or less in 55 AD, and 2 Corinthians was written about a year later. Now, the timeline corresponds with Paul being in Ephesus when he wrote this letter to the people of Corinth. Now, you can see that, for the most part, this is a letter of exhortation against moral problems and some spiritual issues that were going on in the church. So this was more of practicality, but emphasizing the issues that are going on within a church. So in many ways, you see Paul acting kind of like a pastor to these people. You see the pastoral hat that he's putting on himself, and he's addressing the issues that are within the church that need to stop. And it's kind of funny because he starts off chapter 1 with thanking God for them, and being grateful for who they are, and really just making them feel loved and all warm and fuzzy as they start to read this letter. And then he goes straight down to business and addressing the issues that are very problematic. So the first thing that he's addressing is division within the church. And even today, division in a church is dangerous. 
especially as to why they are in this state of division. So right now it looks like that they've made some factions, or parties, if you will. There's different groups that people are trying to associate with. Some are saying that they are children of Paul, or that their allegiance is to Apollos, or Peter is their role model. Or some are just simply saying, I am a child of Christ. Then he goes into showing that none of these other people matter except for Christ. For example, he says, I am Paul. I didn't die for you on the cross. I don't know why your allegiance is with me. What did Apollos do for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. So why do you claim allegiance to me? Claim allegiance to the person that we taught you about. That's Jesus Christ. And that's the only person that you should have your banner under. It is so important, and this is something that Paul is driving home even to us today, is that unity within the church is paramount. We need to be rowing in the same direction. We need to be of one mind with each other. And that is to see God's name glorified in our areas of influence and within its own body. We'll come to a few other issues that are later on, but he's addressing internal issues right now. Stuff within the church that needs to be fixed. Because if the body of Christ is cancerous and is in disarray, how are you going to be able to focus on the gospel? How are you going to appear to the outside world if this is what you're selling to people? Hey, this is the gospel of Christ. This is us as a church. Why don't you join us? And if they see you arguing with each other and in disarray like this, they're not going to want to join up with that. We need to treat each other with respect, and yet we also need to set our differences aside for the sake of Christ, as long as they are just mere differences. But our allegiances should not be to a pastor, right? Because I've seen that in so many churches, where as soon as the pastor leaves, then they leave, because their allegiance was to the pastor. Or, when that pastor leaves, they withdraw from Bible studies and from any sort of activity, because their allegiance was to a man. That's a problem. You go to church, hopefully, to worship God. You go to learn more about Jesus Christ. You go for iron to sharpen iron. But if you're doing it for attention or because you are following a man, that's idolatry. You are there for Christ, and that is the only reason why you should be going to church. It's not for you, it's for worshiping the Lord. Now, when it comes to sharing the gospel, he mentions here in verse 18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's very accurate, isn't it? The world around us does not understand why we worship a dead man on a cross, or at least what they think is a dead man. The wisdom of the world is nothing. There are so many people out there that are claiming to be wise, and in their own wisdom, they never find God, because God is far beyond them. And so we have to show people the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's up to God whether or not that they believe it and they understand it. Because as he's explaining throughout all of chapter 2 as well, is that earthly wisdom is nothing. And earthly wisdom is material and is fleshly. It cannot understand spiritual things. Spiritual wisdom can understand spiritual things. And we can only get spiritual wisdom through a spiritual being. And the spiritual being that is within all Christians is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. And so if we don't have the Holy Spirit, the word of the cross is going to look like foolishness to us because we don't understand the things of God in the flesh. It is so beyond us that we need a translator. We need an interpreter. We need a tutor. And that is where the Holy Spirit comes in. So that's why as a believer, we see things differently than the world around us. Not only because we are redeemed by Christ and we are transformed in such a way where we have spiritual life within us that the world doesn't have, but the Holy Spirit is actively training us. He's developing us. He's showing us his wisdom constantly. Now, the worst thing that we can do is stifle him or ignore him completely. And that's something that we should never be doing. We need to see it like he says here. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, he's not calling God foolish, and he's not calling God weak, because he is not either of those things. But what he's saying is that if there was a measurable attribute of God, and it was perhaps his weakest point, even that is far wiser than all humanity. Or if there is somewhere he has a minor weak spot, it would be infinitely stronger than men. He is perfect in all ways, and so he doesn't have weaknesses or foolishness. But he's illustrating a point here that even if God's not even trying, then he's far beyond humanity. And so he is not to be challenged, and he cannot be thwarted. And so he gets to the point in the middle of chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals all things. And what he does is he shows us wisdom that has been hidden from the world for all eternity past, and since the beginning of time. That's why the more you spend time in the Word, the more you spend time in prayer, the more that the Bible starts making sense. Because you are renewing your mind, like we read yesterday in the book of Romans. Renewing your mind is going to get you here. You cannot ascertain the spiritual things of God if the Holy Spirit is not active within you, and you are not actively participating with him. Like it says in verse 15, He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Because the natural man, which is a nice way of saying an unsaved person, cannot see these things, and it is foolishness to him. That's why, in this way, I still maintain that someone who's an atheist, someone who's unsaved, they can read the Bible, and reading it from cover to cover, and they will not be changed. They will not see God for who he really is, because it won't make sense to him without the Holy Spirit's intervention. And as we move into chapter 3, 
he starts talking about the consequences of what happened in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, we saw that there are divisions. And now in chapter 3, he's showing that there are consequences to it. And the first thing that's going to happen is that your spiritual growth will be stunted. So like he says at the very beginning is that he gave them milk to drink because they are infants in Christ. Their spiritual understanding is limited because they are newly converted. They don't really know the things of God very well. And so you start with the basics. You start with the foundational things before you go any deeper. So why would you try to go into the deepest parts of theology if you don't understand the basics? And I catch myself as a teacher at church having that problem, because the more I want to go deeper into things of God, I often have to hold the reins back a little bit, because so often there is a group or a few individuals within the group that are so spiritually stunted that they cannot grasp foundational doctrines that are essential and core to what we believe. For example, the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, believing that there are no errors, there are no contradictions, and that everything in the Bible is true. I've had people in my own church who have been in my Sunday school or in other places for years, and they still struggle with that concept, that everything that the Bible says is true. How are you going to go any deeper if you already have a bias against the Word of God, that it could be wrong. You are, in, in turn, saying that God could be wrong, too, that he is not perfect. If I were to ask you, you would say, yeah, he's perfect. Okay, and you believe that the Word of God is from God, right? Yeah. Then why would you think that the Word of God is not perfect if God is perfect? You see how that makes no sense at all? But we convince ourselves of such baloney, and it hinders our ability for the Holy Spirit to work in us, because we have built these walls around our heart. Or something else, for example. In the Garden of Eden, do you think that Adam and Eve talked to a literal snake? Do you think a snake was literally talking to her, and she was having a conversation with this snake? That obviously was possessed by Satan, I know, but it was an actual serpent. Well, no, I don't think that actually happened. Okay, what about that donkey when Balaam was whipping it and he was trying to protect Balaam from getting killed by the angel in front of him? Do you think that the donkey literally talked? No, because that doesn't happen. So if you don't think that God is able to make an animal speak, or you think that perhaps the things written in the Bible are not true, how can we trust anything that the Bible says? Some of it, or all of it, could be false. You see what I'm saying? So if we have doubts about the basic fundamentals of what we believe, why do you even believe it in the first place? If you have all these reservations and all these skepticisms, that's not real faith. That is apostasy. That is a falling away and a rejection of the things of God. So we can't have that. 
We simply cannot have that. And so that's why Paul is saying here, you start off with the milk. And once you have learned to drink the milk and you've been good about it, then there should be evidence of growth. And then with that evidence of growth, that comes spiritual maturity. And with that spiritual maturity, then you're ready to understand and learn deeper things. So that is what he refers to here as solid food, those deeper things. Now he again brings up the divisions, and he shows that, look, yes, I participated in y'all's salvation, and Apollos did as well, but none of this would have happened if Jesus Christ was not a part of it. God is ultimately the one who gets all the glory from what has happened. So don't associate it with me or with Apollos, because it is Christ who is the foundation, and it is God who causes the growth. And then we have the Spirit of God, who is within us, because our bodies are the temple of God. If any man contributes to the collapse of a church, whether a believer or a fake believer, someone who professes to be a Christian but are really not saved, there will be discipline by God. God will exact justice, if we were going to take verse 17 literally. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So not only is he talking about the body as in us personally being the temple of God, but he's also talking about the church, the local church. If there is a collapse in the local church due to division or corruption, God will punish those evildoers. And then in verse 18, he talks about how no man should deceive himself, in that if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish. What is he saying? This is reinforcing his points in chapters 1 and 2 about how the foolishness of God is greater than the wisest of man. So a Christian has to understand that the world is foolishness, and yet God is the one that contains all the wisdom. So we must accept that we have no wisdom within ourselves, but rather we accept God's wisdom as the truth, and that is what supports us. So if anyone thinks that they're wise in their own estimation, we need to humble ourselves and recognize that the world is not going to contribute anything of value to us. Because if you've seen how the world handles its wisdom today, it's not handling it well because that is not wisdom. We know that that is not wisdom. That is utter foolishness, and it's getting worse. So we need to boast in the Lord. Everything belongs to Christ, and He is the one who is all-wise and all-powerful. He is the one that we should serve. In chapter 4, he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, where all motives will be revealed. All believers will receive some praise from God if we bear fruit. And we must bear fruit. That is evidence of your salvation. You don't have to have works to go to heaven, but that is proof of your salvation. And then in the second half of chapter 4, he not only describes the contrast between he as an apostle and the Corinthian people, not making fun of them or anything, but 
He's talking about how the apostles have daily problems. They're being treated harshly. They're going without food and water. They're going without basic necessities. They're outcasts of society. And then you have the Corinthian people who are exalting themselves, thinking that they're so amazing and that they have a close-knit community with each other, which they really don't, because they're undergoing divisions. So what he challenges them to do is in verse 16. I exhort you, I am instructing you, be imitators of me. He's not exalting himself to a level of, look, I am the perfect man, you need to follow me. He's saying that, look, and he makes this point in other parts of Scripture too, where imitate me because why? I imitate Christ. So if you want to see a human living example of what Jesus Christ looks like, try to look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the fruit that I'm producing. The things that I'm doing are blessed by God. Therefore, I think my credentials are worthy enough to be imitated. So follow after me because what I'm doing is all for the sake of Christ. Then the very last verse of chapter 4, he talks about if the Corinthian church wants him to come with a rod or in love, because he is now taking the role as the disciplinarian, since he is the one who started this church. The issue that is coming up is a case of incest, that someone has his father's wife. What does that mean? That's either his biological mother that he's having a sexual relationship with, which is disgusting, or it's a stepmother. Either way, and that is something, unfortunately, you see in the world today where that is the forbidden fruit, the stepmother. It's not your biological mother, so it's okay. No, absolutely not. That is not okay. The stepmother draw is not anything good. It is pure evil. When a woman is joined to a man, that bond cannot be broken. But secondly is if it is someone who is identified as your mother figure, that is a perversion, a deep perversion. Not only was it forbidden in the Bible, as it is today, but it was also forbidden in Roman law. So they knew exactly what this was, and yet they were still practicing it. And so what he's talking about here is that if there's anyone within your church who is doing these things, you need to kick them out. First, you should address it. And if they refuse to repent, then you excommunicate them. You do not allow them to come back to that church. Why? Because that is going to be cancerous to the body. Being in leadership of a church myself, I understand that what we allow is going to be a testament to what we believe in. And if we allow this to happen and we know about it, then we are basically saying that we're okay with it, and that is in direct contradiction to what God's Word says. So we would be hypocrites. Not only that, but we would be false teachers, and we would be false prophets, and that cannot be. So that needs to be addressed immediately and swiftly. And that's why he uses this analogy as well about removing the old leaven, anything that puffs you up with pride, anything that is going to be problematic to the entire church. 
That needs to be addressed immediately. Do not let it fester. And then he concludes chapter 5 with a very important statement. He wrote to them not to associate with immoral people, but he's not talking about unsaved people. He's talking about not associating with immoral Christians or people that claim to be Christians. People that call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they live a sinful life. Obvious, flagrant sin. That person you should not associate with. Don't even eat a meal with that person. That person is to be removed from your midst. Of course, he's not talking about non-believers, because then how can we associate with anybody? The people who are not saved live in immorality all the day long. How can we not associate with immoral people and still be on this planet? It's just not possible, right? So that's what his point is, is that it's not saying you can't hang out with immoral people in the world, but do not hang out with immoral Christians. Think about what Jesus did. What did he do? He ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. What did he not do? He did not eat with Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees claimed to be righteous, but they were sinful and evil inside, and he refused to associate with them. What did he do? He reached out to those who needed him, the ones that were lost. Those are the ones he associated with, because he not only met a physical need, as well as a relational need, but that was the entrance for him to address a spiritual need. You see, there's a method into what Jesus did, and it's the same method we should be following too. So often, Jesus would meet a material need and then address the spiritual need. Think about the woman at the well in Samaria. He addressed the physical need about water. And she thought that he was talking about literal water. Give me that water so I don't have to keep coming to this dang well all day. But then he's like, okay, I'm going to satisfy your need for water. But then let's address your spiritual need. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Ah, you see, now you're living a life of adultery. There's an issue there. And this is what I'm trying to get through to you. You see how this works? So we need to be the same way. And that's why we associate with the lowly, we associate with the lost, because that is an entrance for us to share the gospel with them. Be Christ to someone, and that will open the door for the Holy Spirit to work. And I think with that, that's a good place to stop for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.